Welcome to the Shigon Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Fry, and this is the first time we've ever had a guest sing the intro. Um, very fitting that uh, our guest today, Blackjack McDowell, made this video, I don't know how long ago, of this song and kind of what he feels about the state of Major League Baseball and where it's headed. But uh, I'm so excited today. Never actually had a conversation with Jack except through social media, so this is going to be a really cool show. But welcome to the Shigun Podcast, Jack. Hey, what's going on, man? Nothing, buddy. I uh, thanks so much for coming on here, man. I uh, I remember seeing that you sing that song a while back on Facebook, and uh, today when I was looking through some of your stuff and do a little research for the show, and I found I was like, man, I sent it to Dave, and he's like, maybe we should start the show with that today. So that. <laughs> Yeah, it's a funny, funny song I messed around with. Yeah. But you're a big-time music guy anyway. I mean, I, I remember hearing about you uh, being into music during your career, and you were in a couple bands, alternative rock bands. And um, you know, I'm not a big-time alternative rock guy, but I love all music. But uh, you did that for a few years, didn't you? Yeah, I put it, got about six or seven records out there. Wow. Can we find them anywhere? Check them out. Well, mostly you just buy them from me now because the the couple companies that had my first rounds of them were just small companies, and that wasn't the way that you got your music promoted. The big companies are the ones that put you on the radio because they paid the radio to pay you. It wasn't like, oh, you have great songs, so that's the only way you get on the radio. Well, the only way you got on the radio was if they promoted you was also a reason why I never got a, a gold glove because <laughs> your, your your own team had to promote you and they never promoted me. Well, that doesn't make sense. And I, I want to talk about uh, a little bit about your career because uh, when you were, you were a really good pitcher, man. And I remember facing you and you were an, you were the ace of the, of the Chicago White Sox. And I, my first year was 92 in the big leagues, but you, I think your first year was around 87, but the stretch from 91, 92 and 93 was pretty impressive, man. You won in 90 in 92. I think it's 92, 93. You won the Cy Young award in 92. You were second. And in 91, you were ninth. You were all star all three of those years and won 20 games twice, 22 once. And, Man, that's a pretty damn good run right there. Yeah, it was. And the funny thing about it is if you were to go back and go game to game and look at 91, 91 might have been the best year I had, but there were seven blown saves in that year. Oh, wow. I could have 24 wins. Wow. And, and and what I remember, I remember facing you, and, um, you know, it was a long time ago, 30-something years ago. But what I remember about you – you were how tall are you? You like six four? Yeah, six five, something like that. A lot of arms and legs, t- 
tall, slender, um, you know, not a, not a guy that threw mid to upper 90s, but a guy that could probably hump it up to 94, 95 if you needed to, but you pitched. I'm from what I remember around 92, 93, maybe dropped down to the high 80s with a good fast, good two seamer breaking ball, but your out pitch was a split or fork ball that you like to bounce. Is that about right? Yeah, I mean, my, my, that would just change the velocity on my split finger. And so that was basically my, my only off speed pitch. You know, occasionally I'd throw a curveball, but the splits were what I used because, you know, I started throwing it as a sophomore in high school. And that was the main thing that I worked with because I was an infielder also. You know, I went to, went to college as a two-way guy, too, but then that's when I became just a PO pitcher-only dude. And But the reason that I didn't throw, like, a curveball and breaking balls is because I had that the, – the throwing motion that I had was more of an infield motion, more of like a catcher's throw, you know, straight from your ear and throw <laughs> instead of getting the long, little longer arm – action in there to be a pitcher and that just developed over time but in high school that's what I did so you can't really throw a curveball doing that but I could throw my fork ball doing that so I learned how to you know, like you know get on the side of it to have it be a little more of a slider-ish pitch or to get around it and kind of like be more of a screwball type thing to throw to a left-hander and then throw a slower one that was kind of like a knuckleball and that's the thing I remember about you is you were a pitcher. You weren't up there to try and blow guys away. Uh, you were hitting your spots, mixing it up, changing speeds. And for me, those guys were the hardest guys to face. I love facing the guys that came in throwing 95 straight as a string and trying to throw it by you. I was like, yeah, please do that. But it's guys like you that gave me fits. I didn't like guys like you. Well, yeah, that's then that's the whole thing that has been changed in the pitching game is now it's all about velocity. The only thing that matters is the velocity. No, it actually doesn't because there isn't anybody who just has one pitch that if you just said, okay, I'm just going to throw one pitch because my one pitch is so good. My velocity is so good. I'm just going to throw fastballs down the middle and you can't hit it. Well, that's, that ain't true. That's not true at all. Pitching is pitching, which is changing the spots going back and forth, up and down, in and out, and changing the, the velocity and things like that. And and that's the whole thing about hitting too. That a lot of the hitters they don't they don't allow anymore. Is guess what? You know you have to stay through the baseball. And that you know most of the hitting coaches now, as you know, <laughs> are teaching hitting through the baseball is just this big, hard, long finish. Well, no, that does not mean hitting through the ball. It's just keeping the barrel through the ball because guess what? What is the hardest point about pitching and hitting, hitting and pitching? Well, the hardest thing about hitting, to me as a pitcher, is guess what? Is the timing of timing of where exactly you're going to hit the ball. Are you going to hit it exactly where the T is when you're doing T work? No, you're not. You're going to, you might be. You know, five or six inches out in front, you might be five, six inches behind. So you better have a flatter swing. So when you make contact, 
you're still going to be able to drive the ball if you stay through it when you're a little bit early, a little bit late, things like that. But what's going on now is, guess what? If you aren't exactly on time, what is it now? Ah, foul ball, foul ball, foul ball. <laughs> yeah, or swing and miss, swing and miss, swing and miss. And I see a yeah. lot of a lot of these uh, guys on social media when they're showing these, you know, their their hitting videos or their techniques they're teaching. Man, they got that ball set up, belt high in the middle of the plate every time. The the one place pitchers are taught not to throw it. So we're going to just on hitting this groove swing over and over and over and over and over. And if that guy actually throws the ball there, we might crush it. But what about the times that he doesn't, which is almost every other pitch? What are you going to do? Yeah, it's the same thing. And and what I, you know, I'll teach hitting to guys that I coach too. And the one thing I try to tell them is, guess what? If I throw a pitch on the corner of the outside or the corner of the inside, that is not going to be the same swing. It cannot be the same swing. You got to have a little different focus and motion to get to an inside pitch. And you got to have a little better focus and a little bit of not letting that front side open up. If you want to hit that outside pitch, you got to wait, wait, wait. Your body will take the take the bat, you know. Yeah, you don't hit that that pitch down and in that I see a lot of a lot of the instructors. Uh, you know, the one that you just drop the head on. That you don't see uh, guys that can hit that pitch and then they hit the pitch up and away with the same swing. It's too <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, have to, you have to get the barrel to the baseball as short and quick as possible. And for a guy like me, a smaller guy like me. I, you know, I tried to use the pitcher's velocity to help me hit the ball harder and farther because I wasn't strong enough to lift the ball in the air and hit it 400 and some feet out of the ballpark. It's a can of corn. Hey, man, there's a doggy barking. Dogs are there. (laughs) Mabel. (laughs) That's our doggy Mabel. All right. All right. So, Jack, I'm going to – were you a multi-sport guy in high school? Did you hear me? What's that? Did you play, were you a multi-sport guy in high school? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was football, basketball, baseball. Were you and actually got college recruited in all three of them. But I knew that baseball was going to be my, my road down because my, both of my brothers were – Ended up being just baseball players and both played in college at USC. And, you know, that was and, – and they ended up being my coaches. So my, my family were the guys that ran me in baseball through my life. My, my two brothers are seven and eight years older than me. And they ended up playing college baseball and then coaching me in high school. And up until high school, my father coached me from T-ball all the way to it. Wow. That's pretty cool, man. It's a family affair right there. Oh, yeah. That's cool. So what did you uh, – I should have done a little more research on you, but did you play in college or did you sign out of high school? Yeah, I played at Stanford. Oh, well, you're one of those guys, one of those smart guys. I didn't like the Stanford guys. I remember one Stanford guy that I, – I was one for 24 in my career against Mike Mussina. He's a Stanford guy, right? 
Yeah, he came the he came the year after I left, and those are the only two national championships they've ever won. It was the last year I was there, my junior year, and then signed, and then he was a freshman the next year. Kind of took my spot that I left. Wow. <laughs> that was that was one of the bummers that I had to tell you the truth was signing with the White Sox that uh, out of my junior year. And then I look and I go, okay, well, if I would have went back to school, then we would have won another national championship. I would have got that. And then I also would have been playing for the USA national team that won the gold medal that year. Oh, and I didn't get that because I was playing pro ball. I'm like, ah, yeah, well, those have, those have been the fun things to do that I missed out on. Instead, you had to go win a Cy Young, you know. Oh, well. I've always said this, and I know people may not believe that this is my, my true belief, but my true belief is I would trade a Cy Young Award winner for – a World Series champion anytime. Yeah. I've always said it, it's always what I, what I teach my kids too. I say, you know what? Individual stuff can always be better. You can always, you know, oh, great. I was a Cy Young Award winner in 93, but guess what? I had 10 losses that year. Right. So you don't think I could have had a better season than that? You know, yeah, okay, I was the best starting pitcher, but guess what? I couldn't have had a better season been a 10-loss season, yeah, I could have been better. But guess what? If you win the World Series, there is nothing you could have done as a team that could have been any better that year. Yeah. Nothing. And so that's what you do. You try to win as a team, not individual stuff. You know, you just try to win games and do what you need to do individually. But, you know, the whole course of the season, who cares about what you do? You want your team to win. Yeah. Well, I mean, winning the Cy Young's the, you know, it, it basically signifies that you were the best pitcher in that league that year. And that's, that's pretty remarkable accomplishment. And, yeah, I understand what you say about winning the World Series. I never got even close to that. And that's like one of the things that bums me out about my career. I never even got to play in the playoffs. I, I just know I would have loved it. Um, that's you know you're never satisfied as a professional baseball player. You know, you, you hit 300, man. I could have hit 320. All right, you know I won 22 games. I should have won 25. So you're never satisfied. Yeah. I think that's why you know that mindset that helps us stay at that level for as long as we can. You you played 12 years in the big leagues. I played just over nine. Um, you know, consider myself fortunate to have him played that long as a 30th round draft pick, but. Uh, it sure was fun playing Major League Baseball, man. Oh yeah, and now and that's a yeah. You're a thirtieth round pick and got there. Now they don't even allow thirty rounds to be picked anymore because they think that they can predetermine who's going to be a guy that's going to be in the big leagues doing well. Whereas the reason baseball has always had so many levels of progression in the minor leagues is because that's what the sport is about. Who is going to progress forward to be able to move forward to be a little better player, better player, better player? And you can't predict that based on the stuff they predict it with now, which is velocity and how strong they are, big and strong. That ain't what baseball's about, man. Baseball's about being smarter and making adjustments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost predetermined now. 
well, this guy's a first rounder, so he's going to be in the big leagues in three years because we invested six million in him. Well, yeah, that's true too. <laughs> yeah, yeah tons sure he of money. Well, we looked bad. It looked like we we made a mistake, and you know the the guys that get the big money get promoted quicker and get extra chances and stuff. It's a lot of it's just covering the team's ass for drafting a guy that guess what he's not what we thought he was because uh maybe we just looked at the numbers and we didn't look at uh the makeup or the heart or the uh, the drive that this guy had and, and a lot of these kids nowadays we see um in the select ball world and the showcase world that are they're showcase ponies and, and you know they look good uh, they have all the exit velos and the velocity from the outfield and all this, and they get to college and they can't play baseball. Yeah, like it, that's been the the crazy stuff in my coaching life right now. Is uh, you know I've coached from T ball all the way up to pro ball, I've kind of gone back and forth and swirled around doing all the different levels. In the last couple times that I've done college baseball it's been amazing how little they actually know. And we have to start practices that are similar to the little league practices that we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did the little league. I did, well, I did, did college summer ball a couple years ago. The Appalachian league turned into the college league and, and none of the pitchers would cover first base on ground balls to the right side. None of them would back up bases ever in any situation. And we had to really do drills like that so they would understand that, guess what? You got to go over there and cover first base. What if the ball has a weird hop and bounces off the first baseman's glove and you're not over there? Now the guy gets a hit or, you know, it's an error and he's on base. You need to get what, what's going on. How do guys not cover first base? All the way in college, who's teaching them or not teaching them? Everybody. Yeah, that's ele- that's baseball one hundred and one for pitchers. PFP. Let's get over there. Let's learn how to get the first base. You take that angle so you don't go in the baseline. I thought that was something that pitchers could do in their sleep. They're not teaching that to the young kids. No, there was not one guy that we had. And we were watching even the other teams in that league. And all, all the coaches that were on my team at that time were just like, I've never seen any. What is going on here? And it was like, yeah, okay, well, we have to do little league practices this summer to teach these guys what they're supposed to do. And nobody backing up bases. And I'm just thinking, how do these guys understand? I had to show them a picture. I had to show them a video of my son in his 12-year-old little league year he was pitching, and he backed up third base. A throw came in. You know, it was a base hit. Got the runners coming to third. The throw comes to third, gets by the third baseman, and he's backing up. And the guy rounded the base, and he threw and got him out at third base because he was backing up the base. and said, look, look, my 12-year-old knows how to play the game. You know, if you guys don't back up the base, that's a run scored and not an out. Why, why is it? Where did this start? When did they stop doing teaching this? I have no idea. I have no idea because I, you know, I have, I don't know. Just getting there and doing college and going, wait a minute, these guys don't know anything. Does that mean nobody in Little League? That's when you start teaching them all these specific things, yet that's not being done. 
I just think that because the only thing that's focused on right now is the measurable metrics and not the actual complicity of the game. Mm-hmm. That's- you know, it's like it's a complex game and a really you got to be really smart to be able to do all the things and prepare for all the different things that might happen in this game. It ain't just about being big and strong. No, you're right. And I actually, about three years ago, Benji Gill is a good friend of mine. I don't know if you remember Benji Gill, but he came up with the Rangers um, shortstop and played seven or eight years in the big leagues. And he was coaching the summer league team. And he asked me if I wanted to go help him coach. And we went and did a, Perfect game tournament, two hundred some. We one of those deals, and um, we had this one kid. I, I don't remember his name, but he came up in a key situation in the game. I think maybe first and second, or second and third, and uh, he struck out. It looked like he had no clue what he was doing. And after the inning, I went over. I was like, "What were you thinking right there? What was your plan?" He goes, "I don't know." I was like, "So you went up in that situation in the game? This, this kid's sixteen like a sophomore, junior high school. I said, and you had zero plan about what you were trying to do. He goes, no, nah, I was just trying to see the ball and, you know, drive it. I'm like, Oh my God, he's, he has no clue. Yeah. Well, they don't play pepper growing up anymore. And so, you know, they aren't Hey, let's just, just make contact and put it in play. And guess what? RBI. Yeah. Hit it in the air. How about no, but now, now we're teaching all these kids or I'm not, but a lot of these knuckleheads are teaching them to, Hit the ball hard in the air. That's all you got. Yeah. Hit the ball hard in the air. Well, what if it's a two-seamer down? Down. Am I supposed to hit that one up in the air too? You know, it's no plan. No plan. And I, and my last guest on my podcast was, uh, in my mind, one of the greatest hitting coaches in the last probably 50 years, Rudy Hadamio. I'm sure you've heard of Rudy. with the Oh, yeah. Everybody, everybody loved him. Rudy was the man, man. He just was all about keeping it simple and 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 – being positive and you wanted to you wanted to be successful because you wanted Rudy to be proud of you you know and 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 he kept it so simple man balance timing rhythm get square stay square and drive through the ball you know and that's it that's it that's all he did and look at some of the hitters that this guy worked with are some of the best hitters in the last 25 to 30 years to play the game but now all of a sudden that doesn't work so now we got to have this uh, upward swing path, the barrel going up with the knob of the bat going upward instead of to the ball, and get under the ball because we all know the balls are juiced and the ballparks are smaller, and all we got to do is run into a couple and, and uh, you know, damn, I hit 220 this year with 25 homers and 75 ribbies and 220 strikeouts and I had a great year. <laughs> yeah, remember remember what they used to say in our in our era about those guys. Oh, he just tries to hit home runs. You know that guy's not that good. <laughs> yeah, Dave Kingman. Dave Kingman would have been a superhero today. Yeah, you know he was Joey Gallo before. He was way better than Joey Gallo. And, and but now Joey Gallo hits one ninety nine every year, and somehow he's a winning player in baseball. I don't get it. But you play with some great hitters with the White Sox. I know the big hurt. That guy, Big Hurt wasn't happy if he – Big Hurt wasn't going up there and, and swinging for the fences with two strikes. No, and, and the thing about him, too, is you want to know where exit velocity actually got him into the Hall of Fame? B-52. 
because his exit velocity was plus on his ground balls. Mm-hmm. So he hit a hard ground ball. That was getting through the infield, and that's why he's hitting over 300. Because he's not hitting lazy ground balls because that bat's, you know, pointing down on the ground and he hits it late. No, he's hitting through it. And guess what? If it, if, you know, he just happens to be on top of the ball by that little quarter-inch area, <laughs> then guess what? It's a ground ball. But it's getting through the infield quicker than a lot of other guys because he was really strong. And guess what? That was his good batting average. Yeah, I mean, you also play with uh... – Robin Ventura. I don't know some some of the other some other guys I remember from those White Sox teams um, were just good baseball players. Davey Martinez, Lance Johnson, uh, Ray Durham, Ozzie Guillen. Um, those guys were baseball players, man. You know, they were always tough. You knew that those guys were going to do whatever was called for in that situation, the right situation, and 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 try and do whatever it took for your team to win that day. Yeah. Well, another another funny thing that I haven't posted it on Facebook yet, but I should do this down the road was, you know, them not allowing, not wanting bunts, sending more bunts for base hits, anything like that. And I have a video of facing the Mariners, you know, I forget what year it was. I think it was like the one of the early 90s years. And back-to-back hitters tried – to get bunt base hits on me and guess who they were Edgar Martinez and Ken Griffey Jr. both doing bunts against me to try to get on base I think I think maybe Griffey got one done I'm like who would have guessed that those two guys were you know big strong hitters and home run dudes would be trying to bunt to get base hits said so that was just the situation of the game they were it was a situational where they needed to get guys on base and not just, you know, try to hit a home run. That's a pretty good compliment when those two sluggers, you know, and part of the reason a lot of times a big hitter will try and bunt is because they can't hit a guy or they're in a funk. So that one bunt base hit gets your confidence up a little bit so that next time you go up to home plate, you're, you're, you're feeling a little bit better about yourself and now you might get a hit. But a lot of times if I knew I couldn't hit a guy, I'm like, shit, I got to face this guy. I'm going to try and lay one down. Get a cheap yeah, it was the same. I can't believe that guys weren't doing that against the shifts. Because you didn't even need to make a good bunt to get a base hit on the shifts. Just just have a have a cruddy bunt on the on the other side of the shift and guess what? Base hit. Well, bunt it hard, you get a double. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, David, you got a question, buddy? Yeah, Jack, sorry, I always jump in one time on Jeff and Runa's whole podcast. I told you before, the selfish question. So we got the two former major leaguers, myself being a former minor leaguer, and I coached collegially for a long time. I'm seeing more and more kids right now, and I think all kids have it for the most part, swing coaches, throwing coaches, performance coaches, and they all play travel elite. There's so many elite programs out there. But we've got more kids that can't hit, more kids that can't pitch, more kids that are getting hurt. And as you saw it, and I saw the same thing as a college coach, kids can't play the game. We've got, we've got parents from 46 countries that listen to this podcast, uh, grassroots level, all the way up to major leaguers. What's your message out there? What message would you give to parents, kids, uh, young coaches about the way the game is going and what they need to do to, to fix it or at least coach their kid? Because we're all dads here too. 
Well, yeah, and and they just consider us all as dinosaurs of baseball, and don't listen to those guys. They're just old school, and the game's changed, and the game's better. Well, no. I feel like if they would put a group of us together with one of these major league teams, that we would just go out there and just crush everybody by playing the real game of baseball. Because baseball is a complex game where it's all about – pitch-to-pitch adjustment, not just pitching, hitting, but pitching, hitting, playing defense, and base running is all pitch-to-pitch adjustments. And that's not even important anymore. They don't even care about that stuff. So I don't, and, and yeah, like I said, they don't, they don't know how to run the bases well anymore. And I feel like, you know, that's what I, that's why I'm back to coaching the kids now. Because that's, you know, makes it better for me. It's kind of frustrating to watch guys that are going to go to pro ball and they don't know anything about the game. It's weird. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad. And Dave, I would tell these parents that, um, you know, don't necessarily believe all the stuff that you're hearing about the game has changed. If the game has changed, which I keep hearing people say, it's changing for the worse. And, all you have to do is ask former major leaguers and people who have been lifelong baseball fans uh, their opinion of the game because a lot of them can't even stomach watching it anymore. And so you're wasting all this time and money on a lot of this, the teaching, the velocity stuff and the, the hitting fly ball stuff. It's not going to work for your kids. And it's your responsibility if you are going to invest this money and time for an instructor and your, for your kid to find a qualified instructor. Don't do it on social media because if you do a little research, you can find out that the people on social media teaching these kids this stuff never were successful players at any level of the sport. And the ones who were, there are a few who were successful but have bought into the stupid teaching that everybody else is doing because it's popular. And everybody wants to do a little Johnny to hit home runs in Little League. Well, those fly balls, when he gets on the regular size field, are going to be a can of corns. And little Johnny's going to be hitting 100 and not having fun and decide he wants to do something else. Oh, yeah. One of, one of the funny things I always bring up, too, is when, when you go to these indoor complexes and they, you know, they have the thing that shows you how hard, how far you hit the ball. You know, I'm like, oh, well, you know what? Is it windy out or is it not windy? Yeah. You know, are you are are you in at Wrigley Field on a wind day where you're going to hit a lazy fly ball that's going to end up being a home run because it's so windy out there? So wait a minute, wait. Are they measuring that? Do the metrics care about the real world and the wind? Yeah. The ballpark. Well, I think they calculate the ballpark factors in into war now. Blackjack. I think it's you know every everything is uh, about the you know wins above replacement. And I saw a new one. I saw a new one. They have a maybe it's not that new, but I just saw it yesterday called Jaws. You ever heard of that stat? I just I just saw yeah all the stuff that Jaws, they're just making things. up. Pick your seven best years of your career and average your war out and add it to your overall war, and that's your Jaws or something. <laughs> I don't know the whole. I'd like to talk a little bit about the, you know, the Hall of Fame deal. Um, 
Scott Rowland, congratulations to him. I know he was a stud um, when I played against him. I think the, the the argument now is that you know why are some guys getting in and some guys not, and what's what stats um, are important and not, and who should get the vote. And I have a problem with the voting process because to me, the guys who know who the best players in the game were during that era were the guys who played against them. We knew who the best players in the league were every year. We knew who the top pitchers, the top hitters. And it's because we played against them, competed against them, and we saw it every day. So having a 30-year-old uh, writer who was not even a baseball fan during the steroid era now voting for known steroid users uh, just based upon their stats, and that's the only thing they're going by, and not voting for guys that we were pretty sure didn't use steroids and had great careers, to me, is, is a joke. Yeah, and because they don't know anything that went on there, you know that there's still there's a bunch of steroid dudes already in there that they voted for. Yeah, and a lot of it, and I, I, we don't have to get into this. Uh, I know I competed against a lot of guys bigger and stronger in the first place that did steroids, and that's an unfair playing field as a small guy. I refused to use steroids. Even had coaches encourage me to use steroids. I said, I'm not doing it. I want to be able to look in the mirror and say, I did it. You know, I, I didn't cheat the game. And, and I'm proud of that fact. But we know there are guys in the Hall of Fame who do steroids. There's no question. I won't name names. We don't want to get that. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm the same thing. You know, I know, I know the guys and I know, and I ain't going to say it because, you know, I don't really care. I it's still think it's crazy that, you know, guys like, Clemens and Barry Bonds aren't in the in the Hall of Fame, and they're just like, oh wait, what? <laughs> yeah, they were pretty good. They were pretty good, and, and you know, we both know back when we played, um, when they first started talking about steroids, we saw the changes in some players from from end of one year to spring training, and guy puts on thirty pounds. You're like, holy cow! What oh yeah, he shows up and say, wait, who is that? Oh my god. Look at that dude. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I've seen him. I've never seen a few guys like that for sure. Yeah, and those guys. Uh, you know, I would put on 10 pounds every off season, and within the first week of spring training, it was gone. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I never could. They always told me, they always told me growing up, you know, that I was always skinny, tall, skinny, that, hey, when you start gaining away, you're going to start throwing harder. That's going to be cool. You go back and look at my, my rookie baseball card, 6'4. 178, and I never got over 200 pounds the whole time I played. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I knew you were in college trying to eat more, eat more. Hey, yeah, yeah. I mean, it just that wasn't my body. It wasn't what my body was going to do. I was just going to be a skinny dude. Yeah. I, I, my, I remember in the end of 97, the season ended, and I weighed 155 pounds, and I was 4% body fat. And that's not because I was living in the weight room. It's because I was wore myself down. And, you know, yeah. you have the nutrition and stuff like that. I mean, it was Sunday day game, a couple donuts and a cup of coffee. And, you know, after the game, some of those horrible spreads we had. But we didn't – We I ate like crap during my career. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember the, the chocolate-covered coffee nuts that <laughs> – 
<laughs> that they had in Seattle. I used to eat so many of those and then realize, oh, wow, that makes me, I just drank 27 cups of coffee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we, at times we had some special coffee back in the day, um, which I'm not ashamed of admitting that, uh, you know, you play 162 games in six months. Every now and then you need a pick me up. But uh, nowadays all these guys are probably doing monster drinks or, or, uh, Red Bulls or whatever it takes to uh, to get up, and I don't think normal people understand, you know, what how difficult it is to get up for a game every single day for six months. It's tough. Oh yeah, you know. And, and- I was like one of the crazy one of the craziest ones we had was when I was with the Yankees, and on our getaway day in Seattle. And we played we played a game, but it was a night game. And you know, starts at seven seven or seven thirty. I forget which one, but it was seven or seven thirty, and then so the game's gonna be over at eleven, and then by the time everyone gets showered, ready to roll, you get to the airport and go. Think about that. And then it's three hours later on the east coast. And by the time you fly the you know, six hours to get back there and we got home, it was about 11 a.m. by the time we landed and you're like well what am i supposed to do now am i supposed to go to sleep because we got to be at the field in a couple hours <laughs> it was such a weird thing yeah but you know the fans expect you to be uh, on your game on those days they don't understand that <laughs> that yeah that was a rough part about going back to trip my last year i, I went back to triple a and tried to hang on for one more year and you know 4 a.m bus to the airport connecting flights and you get to the city you're going to at one and you know stretches at 3 30 i'm like i'm not sure i can even play today <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like a zombie how, how am i going to get up for this game and, and people don't understand that i remember another time playing for the red Sox. we had a one of those uh late night flights or whatever i think we got home at three something like that had the boston marathon game at 11 Against Bartolo Colon when he was throwing a hundred, yeah, go get him, son. <laughs> Which, you know, but the, I mean, honestly, I loved every second of it. Uh, I have no regrets. I wish I wouldn't have got hurt. I had a couple big time knee injuries that obviously didn't help my career. But uh, man, I love playing in the big leagues and nothing like them announcing your name to bat when you're playing in the Fenway Park for the Boston Red Sox against New York Yankees facing Roger Clemens, man. That's pretty, it gets me, gives me chills thinking about how fun that stuff was. Oh yeah. The, uh, it's funny you say that. Cause I, 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 I got to go back and look cause I grew up in Los Angeles. My whole, my whole life was, I was you know, out of my family. My family were all Pennsylvania born. I said my brothers are seven and eight years older than me, sisters 10 years older than me. They all moved from Pennsylvania to California. And then I was born, you know, seven years later in California. And so, you know, we got to watch the Dodgers and the Rams and the Lakers. And they were all really good back then in the 70s. <laughs> and listening to Vince Scully, you know, Vince Scully was the one of the best dudes you could listen to calling the game. And we had one time in my career when we did the, you know, the final games before the season starts after spring training. And 
when I was with the White Sox, we went out and we played the Dodgers in a preseason game out of spring training and then and I got to pitch in it for a few innings and then Scully was talking about me and I was like oh my goodness growing up I know Ben Scully I gotta go find that on film somewhere and kind of check it out see what he had to say because I know people would always tell me oh yeah he was talking about you in high school around here and this and that wow that's cool I mean I I, I was born in California I was born in the Bay Area and so I grew up a Giants fan and my grandmother, who I lived with, was a Dodgers fan. And now we watched every time the Giants and the Dodgers were on TV. We watched it. And usually the Dodgers won, but I remember Vin Scully too. And and I forget what I think I was with the Rockies. Only with the Rockies for two months, so I was never in the National League except for two months. And we go to Dodger Stadium, and I still have the VCR um, tape. Vin Scully announcing me that he. Messed up my name and he called me Jeff Fly. <laughs> and then he, and he, I was like, "Well, you don't know who the hell I am." And then, then he corrected himself and said, "Oh, I mean Jeff Fry." And he started talking about where I grew up and all this. And it's like, but just hearing this man's voice talk about you just was like, "Man, this is a guy I grew up listening to." That is so cool. How about Dodger Stadium too? The, oh. the smallest locker rooms in the world there. <laughs> yeah, and you know just. And I remember seeing it on TV all the time, but going there and actually playing there, I was like, holy cow, man, I'm in Dodger Stadium. This place has got yeah. history. I remember my my favorite player, Jack Clark, Jack the Ripper, hitting a homer off Tom Needenfear almost out of the ballpark in that stadium. It was like, and now I'm playing here. That's like, it's almost like a you know, surreal experience that you're just so lucky to get to, get to experience. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, pitching these days, Jack. And, and and I don't see many pitchers anymore on TV. I see a lot of hard throwers. There still are some great pitchers. I'm not going to, you know, in my mind, Max Scherzer's a pitcher. Verlander's a pitcher. Kershaw's a pitcher. DeGrom's a pitcher. But a lot of these guys, man, they just go in there for as hard as they can go, for as long as they can go, and four innings. 80 pitches, you're out of the game, let's go to the bullpen. And I just don't see how these guys can last. How, how can these guys have long careers going this all or nothing, 100% full throttle as hard as you can until we bring in the next guy? Well, and there, there's two parts of that that's reality. And number one is – this velocity measurement that they're doing now. And they finally came out last year and, and said that, oh, yeah, it's a different now. We measure it right out of your hand, which is why everyone throws higher than a lot of the guys in, in art. But I said, you know, go back and look at our era and, and put one of our dudes next to one of these dudes that supposedly throws 95 to 100 miles an hour and – look at it and see what difference it is. And it isn't that, there isn't that difference because so the way they measure the velocity right now compared to where they measured it back in our time is different. It was when it was crossing the plate back in our time and it's about a seven to eight mile an hour difference in reality. And a funny thing about that was I was doing... I was doing a game here in Charlotte where I'm living now, Charlotte, North Carolina. 
and the AAA White Sox team. And I was doing a game there and talking about it, and they were like, okay, well, this guy sits at 98 miles an hour. That's his normal pitch. And then out on the scoreboard, it goes 91, 88 to 91, 88, 91. I'm going, wait a minute, that's the measurement. Oh, yeah, that's an old school measuring thing that they haven't changed. They haven't changed the thing yet. And so that shows you the reality of how it was way back in the day. And I don't know if you, I don't know, you know, if you know this part about it, but as a pitcher, you knew that if they were using a jugs gun, that if you threw it chest high, it would be three to five miles an hour faster than the other one. But if you do it, the other one down knee high, it would be three to five miles an hour faster than the jugs gun. It's like, it was all messed up back then. It's like, you know what? It ain't about velocity. It's about pitching and it's about end results, not just how hard you're throwing. Does anyone throw so hard that no one can get to it? No, not even close. And by trying to overthrow the ball, these guys are doing the same type of movement as a lot of the hitters are doing right now which is taking your front side and opening up so because that feels like it's stronger to open up and pull and yank. And that is not where your strength comes from. Strength comes from your body going the same route and kind of staying within itself and not pulling and pulling. Yeah, I mean, when your front shoulder flies open in pitching, you drag your elbow through, you're susceptible to getting hurt. In baseball, when your front shoulder flies out, your head follows it, and you drag the bat through the zone. It slows you down. But that's what I see everybody teaching. Yeah, and think about just think about the mechanics of pitching and yanking your shoulder open and throwing. Okay, well, is your hand getting out closer to home plate? No. So – what does the velocity have to do with that? If you actually do it correctly and take your front side in your head, and I, that's what I teach guys pitching is, you know what, headbutt the catcher. That's what you want to do. Take your head straight to the catcher like you're going to headbutt him, which, which means your arm gets out, and you release the ball a heck of a lot closer than if you try to yank it hard. So the velocity would have to be 10 miles an hour more to actually get there just as quick as if you, when you let it go closer to home plate. I mean, that, that's kind of what I think made the, uh, the big difference for Randy Johnson, his career. Cause he, when he first came up, he had pretty bad mechanics and stuff. And then he really honed in his mechanics and it looked like he was letting go with the ball about 10 feet from home plate when, when he was in his prime, man. And you, you didn't have a whole lot of time to think about what you're doing up there. You basically had to sit fastball and hope that if he throws a slider or something else that you can hit it. Because if you weren't ready for that fastball when the big unit was on the hill, you had no shot. Yeah, and then his slider was nasty because the finish – of his pitch was good, and that's where it comes. The slider comes from getting your your arm all the way out there and having a good finish with your hand. Yeah. I'm sure you got to see a little bit of uh, Nolan Ryan 
toward the end of his career when you came up, right? His last year, I think, was 93, and you, your first year was like 87, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got to see him. And, you know, thing also, we got to see Randy Johnson in college, too. He was at SC then when I was at Stanford, and we got to face him. And even at that time, we knew, you know, oh, he's nasty, he's got good stuff, but if we keep going, we'll get him, you know? Right. And that's kind of how his career started, too. But then when his career changed and he started, you know, just going, okay, now I'm just going to go to the strikes and not overthrow. But guess what? You don't have to overthrow. Your velocity is just your velocity. Yeah. So were you uh, – <clears throat> think about this. So you won – Cy Young Award in 93, right? Yes. Oh, so in 93, I missed the year. I was, uh, I hurt my my knee in the offseason in 92, so I missed the whole year. But I was in the dugout the night Nolan Ryan hit Robin Ventura. And I'm guessing you were too. You know, I wasn't in the dugout. I was actually in the – because I would occasionally go out – in between my starts and hang out with the the guys in the bullpen. And that's where I was when that happened because I didn't read the paper. You know that Nolan, that, that the reason he did that was because Robin stole the base when we were up by seven runs the night before. Yep. And yep. he said, he said, I'm just going to drill him tomorrow. And he said that in the newspaper. <laughs> and, and he did it, and he didn't even get thrown out of the game for it. <laughs> You can't throw out Nolan Ryan in the state of Texas, man. It's kind of it's like yeah, that's what they didn't do, and and they did that. They did that, and I guess Robin said, "Oh, if he, if he hits me, I'm just gonna go get him." And that's what Robin did. He said he didn't go out there to beat him up. He just went and got him. <laughs> if you look, Robin didn't go out there and throw punches. He just kind of went out there. He he wasn't prepared. See, you got to be prepared and make your adjustments, dude. Or you're gonna get hit. <laughs> right, you're gonna look like halfway to the mound. He's like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah, like, I knew I was going to do this, but now what am I supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, I'm charging a, a legend. And then like, there's another part of the story, too, about how uh, Nolan, I think, was getting pummeled, not pummeled, but smashed the bottom of the pile. And, and uh, Bo Jackson came in there and pulled him out of there. I don't know if you remember that part of the story. He pulled him out. Well, yeah, no, Bo, Bo was on him. Bo didn't beat him up. But if Bo wanted to, he would have just absolutely crushed him because, yeah, once once Nolan was down on the ground and Bo was, like, on him, knee to knee, got him prepared. I'm like, oh, my goodness, he would just would have killed him probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is he the – I mean, you play with Bo, obviously. Is he the most freakish athlete you've ever seen? In baseball oh yeah well here here here's a funny cool thing and another thing that i teach about the pitching and all this is we did a study on grip strength the year that Bo was with us with the white Sox, and we all did our grip strength to see who had the biggest grip strength. and i had the biggest grip strength on the team on the team and beat Bo Jackson on grip strength, if you can believe that. Holy and so I know why it was, because a lot of the stuff that I did training-wise was with the baseball in my hand, because that is what made the muscles get stronger correctly how you wanted them to be stronger by you know having the ball in your hand. So that's what I, I teach guys when they do all the, you know, the pull things that they do to get your 
shoulder strong and all. I'm like, do the one with the ball on the end of it so you can hold the ball because that will get you a realistic strength training. And also was the rice bucket stuff where you had the ball and you worked in the rice bucket. I still got one of those at home. My kid uses that. And I, you know, if I ever work at a complex, I'll let them use that. And that is really what helps get strong. Not just let me try to lift some really heavy stuff. No, do stuff where it strengthens you in the process of actually doing something that you want to do in the sport. Right. And I remember I've told the story a few times about, a family friend of mine when I was growing up in California was playing minor league baseball. He was a pitcher. And he told me, he says, get a rubber ball, just a cheap rubber ball from the grocery store, two bucks, put it in your bag. And everywhere you go, keep that ball in your bag and squeeze it and squeeze it and work on your feet, yeah. work on your yeah. hands and your forearm strength. And, you know, later on, they came up with a few things, those hand grippers. And there was even this thing you could slide your hand over your um, hand and do this little kind of like a, a forearm curl, wrist curl. And I did it nonstop. Every year I did it nonstop because to me, what helped me in my career as a hitter was being strong, having strong hands and forearms. And I tell kids all the time to do that. Um, you know, if they can put down the, the video game controllers and their cell phones and pick up something that's actually going to help you down the road and you know be a better baseball player to do it and yeah that's a that's a tough thing about being a parent right now is my two kids i have middle school kid and a 10 year old little league kid now and i built out in back i have a batting cage that i put out there and i also built a little wall with a strike zone on it that you can throw the ball against and you know you throw it and then you can get the ground ball throw it get a ground ball throw it, get a ground ball and you know just why wouldn't you go out there and do that and they just they don't do it they don't use that part of it <laughs> they'd rather be on their phones and play all these games i'm like gosh they have these things out here and, that they could go do that i would have loved to have done at my house growing up the only the only thing we were able to do is if someone wanted to play pepper or my brothers wanted to play pepper in the backyard and then if you get i could get some ground balls and you know learn how to bat control and things like that yeah and drove me i mean i used to live at uh this gaming community in fort worth on the golf course i mean i've lived on the tee box and my kids didn't play golf i was like what's wrong with you guys go get your buddy and go play golf and then now they're both in college one's out and now they love playing golf i was like you wasted 15 years of free golf and now you like to play golf <laughs> you know I mean, you can't make them do it, and I would encourage them to do it. They wouldn't do it. Nobody had to make us do it, Jack. Nobody had to tell me to go out and throw the ball against the wall and listen to the Giants game on the radio and try to emulate what they were doing during the game. The pitch is thrown. I throw it against the wall, try to hit it in the strike zone. Now it's a ground ball. I'd feel it, and if I didn't throw it in the strike zone after I filled it, it was an error. And I did that every day growing up. You know, and yeah. love every second of it. And I know that's a huge reason why I played baseball till I was 36 years old. Because I worked at it yeah. when I was eight. And I loved it. And I don't see that kids today, I know there are plenty of them that do love the game. But I think a lot of the stuff that you do on social media is that uh, 
you know, mom and daddy taking little Johnny to his lesson twice a week with his hitting guru or his pitching guru and doing all this stuff in the cage and hitting off a tee. That's not helping these kids be better baseball players. I, I, I Hopefully at some point parents start listening to guys like you and I that played this game. And we know what it took, and we never had a lesson. I'm sure you never had a lesson in your life, except for your brothers teaching you what they knew. And and that stuff, to me, is so much more valuable than the hitting doctor having your kid in for a three-hour elite hitting lesson for 300 bucks. Oh, yeah. Drives me crazy, man. I don't know if you know, but I got kicked off Twitter because I uh, – I posted a video of some driveline guys with like 12-year-olds throwing weighted balls and doing running guns into the net because I'm like, this can't be good for these kids. These kids should not be doing this stuff at this age, weighted balls and running guns. Yeah, the weighted ball thing is nobody – I haven't heard anybody talk about it, the reason why it disappeared. It started during our professional playing career, Jeff. It started – where the weighted balls came out. But then there were so many injuries because of it, they just got rid of them, and it disappeared. But now it's back? What, there's not going to be now all that stuff? I'm like, oh, wait a minute. All these metrics, guys, do you do you metric the reality of why that this hasn't been around? Yeah, because there were so many injuries caused from that that that's why it disappeared. Yeah, but now Driveline's giving you a, a discount on that bundle of weighted balls for your 12-year-old, so go get them. Yeah. Well, just leave a baseball out in the rain, and that'll that'll be a weighted ball for free. Yeah. Yeah, some of the knuckleheads on social media are like, well, a baseball weighs five ounces. That's a weighted ball. It's like, come on, man. You guys are reaching. We're talking about 12-year-old kids whose bodies aren't developed, whose growth plates are still open doing weighted balls and risking injury, let him go play catch out in the street, let him play long toss, and they get a little bit older. If it looks like, you know, this is something that they want to pursue and they have the ability, get him a a qualified pitching instructor maybe once every two weeks or whatever to just work on mechanics, throwing strikes, and if they have the arm strength and if they're willing to put in the work, maybe they'll get a chance to play. Uh, it's it's funny because my 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 son now who's in middle school he's in the eighth grade right now but last year he was in seventh grade and they had a really good team and he didn't get a ton of playing time in and he's he's a second baseman and pitcher and he hasn't hit you know he's he's eighth grade but he hasn't really hit his strength yet and he's not he's all you know one of the smaller dudes right now. And he got to pitch one inning in their thing. And now, I mean, every pitcher they had, oh, yeah, they were hard-throwing seventh graders, but guess what? They'd walk eight to ten every every game. And he went and pitched one inning, five pitches. <laughs> five pitches, three outs, we're done. Like, see, that's they throwing the ball, pitch to contact and know how to pitch. That gets it done. You think we're ever going to get back to that at the major league level? I don't know. It's one one contact I want to make is with Dave Stewart now that he's got that crew that wants the new team if they expand the league. Mm-hmm. I want to see if he's 
going to do it smart and go get a bunch of old school guys like us and say, hey, we're going to go back and we're going to do it the way it should be. And I just saw that he hooked up with Don Mattingly, so I'm going to call Cap and see whether whether we can hook up with Stewart or not and see whether he that's what they want to do if they get a new team. Yeah, well, I, I know Dave Stewart personally because he was uh, with the Blue Jays when I played there, and he's also an agent, and uh, I have his contact information I'll share with you. But he's a good dude, and that would be great because we know baseball is a copycat league. It's just going to take one team to go back and play the game. I'd love to see somebody do what play like the Cardinals did when they were had that World Series against Kansas City, man. They had the speed guys at the top and 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 solid guys in the middle and guys at the bottom and just played baseball, man. That to me that was the most exciting time in baseball when Vince Coleman got on base and he stole 140 bases or whatever. And you're like, dude, every time this guy gets on base when you got Vince Coleman, Tommy Herr, and Willie McGee, that defense is nervous. <laughs> they're on there because you don't know what's going to happen. You blink and these guys got first and third, no outs, and they're about to do some damage. Oh, yeah. That all disappeared. Yeah. Well, I hope and pray that, uh, you know, the game can get back to the way it used to be because it's heartbreaking to me that guys like you and I and a lot of other guys that I talked to that played this game and love this game can't even watch it yeah well you know what i gotta head out now because i gotta go get my dude out of school all right jack well i do appreciate it man we ran a little bit over but uh thank you so much for taking the time uh to be on the shegon podcast uh hang on for a second at the end um thank you david for uh, a great show and uh, i will send you the link to the podcast as soon as we get it done. Um, this is Jeff Fry signing off and his guest, Black Jack McDowell on the She Gone podcast. She Gone! Take them out of this Baseball magic's crap is so lame.